Hello and welcome. This is Perspective for Parents. My name is Nick Thompson, and this is a podcast for parents of adolescents. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. So we took the interview with Brandon Slade on executive functioning. Um, we're going to make it two parts. Brandon and I got to, uh, to talk in. And he had a lot of great things to share. So there's quite a bit of content here. So we decided to make it two parts. So this will be part one of the interview. And part two will be released Tuesday at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Please come back for part two. Okay. We have Brandon Slade with us here today. Brandon is an executive functioning coach, and he founded Stride Learning. Stride Learning was created on the belief that the most effective way for an individual to improve academically, emotionally, and socially is through an active mentoring program. So a little bit more on on Stride Learning. It's a -a one-of-a-kind program that teaches students executive functioning skills through a dynamic mix of mentoring and movement. As someone with ADHD, Brandon saw firsthand how the traditional classroom environment can be challenging for students. Brandon helps students with ADHD and dyslexia, as well as those with no diagnosed challenges. He helps these students learn vital organizational, time management, and life skills. He teaches skills that boost confidence, improve well-being, and help students succeed. So here we are. I wanted to bring Brandon in because he's a great executive functioning coach, and so that he could talk about what parents could do to best support their kids during their return to school. School that for many will be different, at least to start. So a lot of the questions are going to be about that. And to do this, I asked for and received questions from parents about all of this. So let's get into it. All right, first parent question. Brandon. How do I help my student with executive functioning challenges continue to thrive academically with so much uncertainty? The first thing that I have for parents and the first piece of advice is to have an unbelievable amount of empathy for yourself. You're just thrown into a situation that couldn't be more challenging for a parent with a kid with executive function challenges. So the beautiful thing about school is it provides structure for our kids. And that's the traditional school, right? Like period one goes from 8.30 to 9.30. And then they have a small block of time and then period two. And so within those periods, not only is there structure created there, but teachers create the lesson plans. Mm -hmm. For the first 10 minutes, we'll be doing our warm-up. The next 20 minutes is instruction. And you can see how everything is unbelievably structured. Even this much amount of structure sometimes isn't enough for our students with executive function challenges, which is why they struggle in school to begin with. Now, we have to find a way in some capacity to replicate that structure or some kind of version of that structure at home. That's the place where I would start, is what routines and what structures work in your household. And then I would plan that out as best as we can to help our kids during this uncertain time. Okay. When you say structures, could you be more more specific? So I'm thinking of the families that may have had little structure this past spring when things went remote and kind of had just a like a reactive scattered, just like let's survive this period. 
and now they're coming back to something very similar in terms of remote learning or hybrid learning. And would you agree, I guess I'm asking two questions, would you agree that things need to be different than they were in the spring? And when you say things like what structures work, what kind of structures are you talking about? Yeah, great question. So where I would start the conversation as a family is first, what time are we going to start our day? So what time and what location? Neuropsych research says kids have better attention, retention, and overall learning if they work in the same time in the same location as much as possible. So that could be something along the lines of, we're going to start our day at 9 a.m. at the kitchen table, and this is where you're going to work from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. You can even create structures within that. So for the first 10 minutes could be, we're going to do a little, on, on a post-it note, we're going to outline our day. What are the tasks that need to be done? Okay. We're going to check Schoology first. We're going to get organized. So just having these little, these little pieces of structure along the way are super helpful. And then we praise the heck out of the process when possible. Okay. So that's start time. Let's, get, let's, let's di- dive into that. Um, wake time, out of bed time, out of room time, at the <laughs> desk time. What are your recommendations for, you know, and maybe be age specific, elementary, middle school, high school, college students in terms of wake time? Because as you're well aware, um, some wake time, some school start times argued and researched that they start too early. So what times are we talking about where the day should start? For different age kids. Yeah. So the great news about this is it's much more structured across the country than it was last year. Okay. So a lot of school districts are requiring synchronized learning with, or they call it synchronous learning, where kids have to be logged in at certain times. Okay. So this takes care of the problem for many parents. However, if it's 100% an online model, what I would recommend is it really doesn't matter when the school day starts to me. It's that the child is going to bed at the same time and waking up at the same time within reason, right? I would say the latest a school day should start is 10 a.m. Because we still want to get them involved in some sort of normalcy. And we want to make sure the school day is wrapped up where they have time for the extracurriculars. And they also have time to do whatever it is that they enjoy at the end of the day with that guilt-free freedom you always talk about. Okay. Another thing you mentioned in that response was, was location having a specific location, you know, sort of a sacred study spot. Something you mentioned was the, was the kitchen table. Do you have anything more for parents in terms of planning for and creating that space that is exclusive and conducive to doing school? So, With my ADHD, I'm more of a coffee shop person. Okay. And other people are more of library people. I like the buzz in the background, which drives a lot of parents nuts. You know, when the TV's playing or when there's background noise, I actually work better. So the first thing I would ask your student is, do they like background noise or not? And that can start to help you form the space. The second piece of this is attention is golden, especially when you struggle with executive function skills. So we want to make sure all the materials that we need are set up within arm's length, any drink of water, any food before we sit down to work. Because um, there's a bunch of studies that have come out, but it's an average of about 20 to 25 minutes to get back on track after you break that focus. 
So we want to make sure that we are locked in, we're focused, and we don't need to get up and get a drink of water or anything else while we're studying. Of course, we want movement breaks and everything in between classes. But while we are working, we want everything there to, to stay on task. So that noise, the noise thing, I, I have a question for you. How would you talk to a parent, support a parent who the child advocates for noise, maybe in the form of having Netflix on, YouTube, something like this, something that could be seen as highly distractible, and they say that they work best with this type of noise or background noise, but it becomes apparent to the parent that it's a distraction and their child really isn't staying focused or getting stuff done, but they're really advocating for having noise, screens, something around them. How would you, how would you advise a parent to have that conversation with their child? I, I, I would listen to the child and I would say, we're absolutely going to give you noise. Here's a noise machine that gives static or something okay. like that. Um, so I, I, I would give that noise and say, you know, I, I hear you loud and clear. You need some kind of background noise, but we want to make sure that you are focused because I want you to have a lot of freedom on the back end of this. If you have an hour of schoolwork, I would like you to get that schoolwork done in an hour so you can have that guilt-free freedom that we talk about so much. Um, what we try to do is we try to frame it through the discipline equals freedom, the Navy SEAL model. If you're disciplined enough to take care of your academics and stay focused in your sacred study space, you're going to have a ton of freedom on the back end, which is we want, what we want our students to start to learn. Yeah, and experience. I think we, we've talked about this before, but, you know, that realization, like, when you don't have self-discipline in your life and people are trying to introduce it to you and you imagine it. I remember for, for myself and, and when I introduce it to, to young people, it's sort of this feeling that a life of self-discipline will be incredibly boring, <laughs> that it's all boring and structured and there's no fun. There's no freedom. There's no spontaneity, but something that you always talk about that's so great is like, no, 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 no. You practice the self-discipline. Then you get all that fun, that spontaneity, that independence, that choice, that free time. And it's not, it, it, it's not covered in the film of guilt I should be doing something else. <laughs> it's it's a it's a disgusting film, that film of guilt for sure. Yeah. Um, and and this works in a lot of different ways. Like I know if I'm not disciplined enough to get my workout before I start to do to do my academic work, then I'm not gonna have the freedom of attention, right? I'm gonna be fidgeting like crazy and it's just gonna be really hard for me to get through my work. I'll probably have to redo it. So so we want to really enforce this discipline equals freedom concept as much as possible. And it is a counterintuitive concept. So don't be surprised if your student doesn't quite understand it, but when they do understand it or they act on it, meaning they actually have one day where they take care of their academics and are done by 3 PM. We want to praise that so much. Our ADD kids and our kids with executive function challenges, they get so much negative feedback mm -hmm. that when they do demonstrate that discipline, we want to praise it as much as we can. I like that. Praise the process, compliment character, catch them doing right. Process, process, process. There's a bunch of research out there that um, my specialty is ADHD, but many ADHD kids get one positive comment to every 10 negative comments. Jeez. And to be as a, you know, the ideal situation is two to one positive to negative. Working with kids, if I can get one positive for every three negative comments that I make, I feel really good about myself. Because that two to one, I don't know who's able to get that. But um, 
we want to make sure that we're just praising the process so much and the outcome will eventually take care of itself. Now, this has become a, a buzz phrase, praise the process. Can you jump into what does that mean? What does it mean to praise the process? Yeah. So going back to our earlier example, let's say the school day in the household starts at 9 a.m. Um, praising the outcome would be if the student gets all of their homework done for the day, that's when, that's when we praise that. However, to start this out, I would praise the kid if they're sitting down at 9 a.m. Yeah. with their laptop or computer open. Yeah. Like, that's a great start to the day. Um, sometimes we have to be disgustingly positive <laughs> with these kids who have a long way to go. It's like, you're the greatest human being that's ever lived. You got out of bed by 9 a.m. and opened your <laughs> laptop, right? Um, that's a great start. And then you, you can slowly build up. Like, I'm so proud of you. Do you know you just worked for 15 minutes straight? Um, this is how things are built. And this is also why these are exhausting kids. And that's why I started this conversation with have a lot of empathy for yourself as a parent. And sitting down and flipping open that laptop at a certain time and being ready, that is worthy of praise if it's difficult, if it hasn't been done before, or the young person struggles with it. So I think it's, it's noticing those small steps and back to the what does praising the process mean to, to, to talk about what you were saying is it's praising the effort. It's praising all those little steps that it takes to get to the desired outcome. Correct. It's, that's a phenomenal way to put it. We don't want to offer false praise. Right? If, the kid can, if the kid's been opening up their laptop at 9 a.m. for years, we don't, we don't want to give false, false, inauthentic praise. But if that's a little bit of growth for them, let's recognize that. Yeah, recognize the growth. Something else that, uh, that you talk about and have already talked about in this, in this uh, interview is exercise and movement breaks. So let's start with, with movement breaks. How do you talk to parents? How do you talk to students about the importance of movement breaks? How frequent should they be? What types of movements? How long should the break be before you come back? What are your thoughts on that? This, it's such an individualized question. Okay. So, so, so I'll give, I'll, 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 I'll try to wrap it up as best as I can, but, um, you really have to know your child. I'm on the hyperactive side of ADHD, right? So I need movement breaks every 20 to 30 minutes okay. and a trampoline is the best invention for an ADHD person ever five minutes on that trampoline. And I'm ready to focus again for another 20 minutes. However, you have to know your, you have to know your child. If your child has a really hard time with task initiation, then we don't want to pull them off that task every 20 minutes because we want them to be able to focus for as long as possible and then work in a movement break. Okay. So knowing your kid, but also knowing that movement breaks are incredibly important for focus and being at home does take out a lot of movement that school did provide, whether it's just walking between classes, physical education class, after school sports. And so we have to replenish that dopamine and we have to help our kids focus as best as we can. Okay, so if I'm hearing you right, it, 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 depends, it depends on the youth, but for, for students who really struggle with task initiation or starting something, you may want to capitalize on the fact that things have started and there's a good energy. So maybe that student doesn't take a break every 20 to 30 minutes. Am I hearing you correctly? Yeah, one of the gifts of ADHD, which the traditional school just, just kills is the ability to hyper-focus. You and I have talked about this a lot in our personal lives. Yeah. I know where you get deep into something, you can be in that zone, do incredible work for hours. 
in traditional school, we get these kids who get in the zone and then we pull them out every 30 to 50 minutes. And then we have them switch subjects, switch classrooms, and they never can really um, hyper-focus and do great work. So if you have that kind of child, the one that hyper-focuses, let them go, right? But if you have a hyperactive child, how I would set up my day as a hyperactive high schooler is from 9 to 9.05, I would get a sticky note out and I'd list my to-dos for the day. From 9.05 to 9.10, I would look through the previous day's assignments to make sure that they all got graded and they're actually in the grade book because I forget, I forget to submit things all the time. Mm-hmm. And then from 9.10 to 9.50, I would start my first class, whether that's watching a lecture or doing the academic work. And then I would go jump on my trampoline or I'd walk around the block from 9.50 to 10 a.m. And then I would just hit the reset button. Back into it. Check, check what yeah. I have for my second class for the first five minutes. Yeah. Make sure I turn in the previous work. Do my work. Movement break. Just, just rinse and repeat. That's good. So I heard trampoline and then I heard a, a walk around the block. And so for families who don't have a trampoline, most likely they have a block to do a lap <laughs> yeah. or a lap around the house. What other activities do you recommend um, in terms of opportunities for, for students for movement breaks? Now, let's say that this is in their house and they're doing remote learning. What ideas do you have? What, what have you heard from students or families that have been effective in terms of movement breaks? So the research states that if you can get your heart rate up at 75% for 15 minutes a day, attention, focus, learning, and retention is dramatically improved. Okay. So I don't expect the kids to be wearing heart rate monitors or anything like that. But just as a general rule, 15 minutes of intense movement per day is ideal. 15 to much, much more. Um, you know, depending on the student, what they're interested in. If we have a student that's really into hockey, we can just go do slap shots in the driveway or something like that. If the student wants to get bigger, faster, stronger for football or basketball, you know, push-ups or jumping squats or some kind of plyometrics are super helpful. If the child isn't into sports, like that's okay. It could just be as simple as a walk outside. Mm -hmm. Um, Any type of movement, but as a general rule, 15 minutes of intense movement per day is ideal for learning. Now, can that be broken up? Can that be three, uh, three, five minute movement breaks? Or are you saying the break should be 15 minutes? It can be three, five minute movement breaks. Okay. And remember, again, back to praising the process, know your child. If your child isn't into working out or they're not active and they get two minutes of activity on one day, maybe that's something that we praise right? They're on the path to success and their learning is going to be improved even if it's not for the full 15 minutes. I got a difficult question for you and I imagine it'll depend on, um, on the family, but um, I hear a lot from parents with things being done remotely or even if my child's doing homework at home, what level of supervision or participation should I have in that process you know, the positive being to, to provide accountability. Negative, the child reports, my mom, my dad, they're just hovering. They are just hovering. They're always in my business. I can't get anything done because they're just over my shoulder. I can't relax. How do you have that conversation with families? So I'm really good at giving advice to other families, but I'm really poor with my own kids, <laughs> with my own child. So, so uh, everything, I, all the advice I give is research-based and just know it's way easier said than done. Okay. So the first thing I would do is I would have um, families give very, very clear consequences and rewards. So super, super clear. Like if you can 
do this routine. If you could be at your sacred study space at 9 a.m., you get this small dopamine hit. Mm -hmm. Remember, it doesn't have to be money or anything like that. It can be an extra 15 minutes with friends or however that looks, right? Mm -hmm. But super clear consequences and rewards are a great start. Making the routines very clear. As a parent, I'll just give an example. Of a parent, as of a high school student, I would check to make sure all their assignments were completed and that they had a plan for the day and then they would have work time. Okay. I would also check to make sure that they are advocating for themselves in some capacity. Yeah. Because our ADHD kids are usually incredibly good at relationships. One of the huge disadvantages that they have is that they're not able to talk to teachers and advocate anymore. And so how do we replicate that through an online system? It's usually through emails or some, something else. So clear consequences and rewards and just checking to ensure assignments are done and just making yourself available help with advocating or if they need any academic work, but do try to hover as little as possible because learning happens as much as possible when they're the ones initiating it. Okay. Yeah. When I think about the, the student's ability to ad- advocate for themselves, and, and um, yeah, I hope so many students are able to, I hope schools provide office hours. I hope teachers provide some level of office hours for those. So those students who really do need that accountability who can advocate for themselves and use their social skills are provided that so that they can talk to each teacher and use those skills. Yeah. To advocate for whatever they need in this new environment. I know the kids we work with in our practice, that's a mandatory thing that we're doing for our kids is that they have to send an email on the first day of school, which we help them craft. It's hi, my name is such and such. I'm really into this. Here are great things about me. Here's how I learn best. Here's how I, because remember, we don't want it all to be negative. I cut you off. You said how I learn best? How I learn best, what I struggle with. And then if there's ADHD, dyslexia, something else, we we just explain that because we want to make sure that we're allowed accommodations if those are afforded to us. So we have to make the first, you know, the first um, communication. And once we do that, we see teachers, uh, they're, you know, they're, they're much more inclined to respond to us and we can still be build that relationship. It's just a, diff, a little bit more challenging and different. I love that. I love starting with that introduction email and the front loading of this is who I am. These are my differences or difficulties. Here's my strengths. Here's how I learn best. I love that. I love that introduction, that, that human connection piece. And I have always the accountability. I put myself out there like, you know, what really works for me is being held accountable when teachers know who I am, when they point out if I'm not in class or if my work is um, is going down, if the quality of the work is going down. Just putting that out there to start this different semester seems like such a such a great idea. Yeah, I, I, I wish I was the one who thought of that. I, I, I taught special education for 12 years. And in that 12 years, I actually had one student come to me and give a little presentation about themselves on the first mm. day, like, like, like right after my class. And I'll never forget it. It was so well done. It's one of the few times I can say that it didn't take me till February to completely understand a student in a class of 30, right? Yeah. It was like August 15th. And I completely understood this student. What were their strengths, where they struggled, accommodations that I need to give and more so just just like who they were. Uh-huh. And our kids can do that. So a recommendation I would give to parents, I'm big on reminders in my phone just because if I had a planner, it'd be lost. You know, it'd be at 
I'd make one and be left at Starbucks and then be left at the next Starbucks or something. Yeah. But um, so how, so a recommendation I would give is send out an introductory email and then set a reminder for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks later to re reach out to that teacher just for some kind of progress. So, Hey, Mrs. Such and such. I just want to let you know that I'm really enjoying your class how can I improve as a student? What's going well? Just just making an effort to have a relationship with teachers. And what I'm hearing, and I think it's an important distinction, is that the student send the email and the follow-up email. Am I hearing you correctly? Not the parent. Correct. And keep in mind that we do everything through the lens of school, but there's so much executive function training within this. So not only are we learning how to advocate for ourselves and really do self-assessment, right? What are we good at? What are we not so good at? But we're also learning how to set reminders, follow up with people. When I have a job interview, I want to follow up with people two days later. What's my system for that? So you're putting in systems and we're doing a lot of executive function training just within this little advocating thing. Yeah. And and how's the phrase go? The the squeaky wheel gets the oil. (laughs) There's there's so much truth to that. And so many of the students that I work with, uh, be squeaky in terms of, I don't understand. I'm not following. Yeah. I need help. Lean on the teacher. And again, I encourage the student to be squeaky, not so much the parent. Oftentimes the parent is more likely or willing to reach out. And, you know, we've had conversations before and uh, you've done a good job of at what point, and I think you have a specific age where you say, or grade where parents shouldn't be emailing teachers. What do you want to speak to that? Yeah, actually, a quick side note. I, I want to touch on something you said as well. Okay. Um, the squeaky wheel piece. Yeah. I actually really enjoyed as a teacher when a student would speak up for themselves. Yeah. And I know a lot of other teachers do as well. So it's not because we always use that phrase with the parent, like, oh, that's that's the squeakiest parent, right? It's just like they're always bugging me. But with the kid, it was a very different feel as a teacher. It's like this kid cares about their learning and they're invested. So I really want to help them. Yeah. Going back to your last question, um, I. I it's so different for every kid, but I would say once a student starts high school, even if it's supported with parents, meaning they're helping them look over the email, I, I think that's time for when students, it's time for them to advocate for themselves. And just know teachers have the same rule as well. Many high school teachers I know do get frustrated when it's the parent reaching out rather than the student, because at that age, they should have the skills to advocate for themselves or at least try to. It's good. You said ADHD earlier and, and, and discussed that. And that reminds me of another parent question that, um, that was submitted. So, so I'm going to slide that question into the conversation right now. The question from the parent is this. My son was recently diagnosed with ADHD. I'm overwhelmed with where to begin to help him. Thoughts? That's a hard, that's a hard question. And Open that's, yeah, and, and, and that's really hard. So... When the parents first get that news, um, they don't know where to start, right? Because so many things are a challenge. So when you look at the fundamental building blocks of helping a kid with ADHD, in that I wish I, I wish I was able to, to show this visually, but the bottom foundation of the building blocks to helping a student with ADHD are diet, sleep, exercise, and routines. So I would start, I wouldn't get... Can you repeat those? And yeah. do you have like a visual of that that we could add to the show notes? Yep, I, 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 could, I could definitely include those. So Perfect. diet, exercise, sleep, and routines. So when a, 
parent first gets a student diagnosed with ADHD, they'll come to us and be like, what app to use? What, what, what's this tactic? What's this? And you're talking like top of the pyramid stuff. Right. We don't move up the pyramid until the foundation is taken care of. Okay. So does the, does the student eat somewhat healthy, mm-hmm. right? Are they getting that 15 minutes of exercise, which we talked about? Mm-hmm. Are they actually sleeping? Because sleep def- deficits and ADHD go hand in hand. And do they have some routines? So tying two together, what's the bedtime routine? Mm-hmm. That's usually my first question is around 10 p.m. This happens. The student starts winding down. We're in bed by 1030. Um, sleep, diet, routines, exercise. Start with those. And start with when you say routines is one of them. Well, sleep is a routine. Exercise is a routine. Eating healthy is a routine. So it sounds like you can feel overwhelmed by this diagnosis and want to jump into, I guess, a more specific or sometimes I say more fancy interventions. Yeah. But what I'm hearing you say is that the body is the basics. When we find out that there's ADHD, attention issues, um, that we have to really focus on the body in terms of sleep, exercise, eating right. How do you talk to parents? uh, The more I talk with, with young people, I continue to be surprised, shocked, um, confused as to why so many of them don't eat breakfast. It's like, I don't, I don't eat breakfast. I'm just not hungry. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. This doesn't have to do with hunger. You have to eat breakfast. Is that something that you talk to families about, that you talk to students about? Yeah, all, all, all the time. All the time. I mean, I mean, because then what happens just, just from teaching, it's 10 a.m. They can't focus in class. They're reaching for whatever junk they can find in the school vending machine. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, being proactive with your problems is, is a great start. And could I throw in another routine there? Absolutely. Another very, very simple routine. We talked about the sacred study space, which is huge. But Sunday night planning is very helpful as well. On Sunday night, just sitting down at the kitchen table and just having, whether it's an electronic calendar or a, a physical calendar, um, and just going through, like, you have baseball on Wednesday. You have therapy on Thursday. You have, and so the student starts to understand how to plan out their week. Then we can layer that in with academics and have higher level conversations. Like, remember, you have this huge research paper due on Friday, but you have therapy on Thursday. And the kid will be like, yeah, yeah. But they won't connect the fact that they're not going to have all night to work on the paper. So we have to be proactive. So some kind of planning at the beginning of the week is really, really beneficial over time with our students. All these routines take time and every routine is challenging to start, but be patient, be patient with the process. So a Sunday sit down where the student gets kind of the lay of the land when it comes to the upcoming week so they can better plan, organize their week. And I, I think a part of that, someone who checks out their, their week on Sunday evening, is there's less fear, anxiety, worry and less procrastination because I looked at it. I know what it is. And by looking at the week, we often find that it's not as scary as we may have thought if we don't look at it and we're unprepared. piece of procrastination is avoiding sometimes figuring out what we have to do. Absolutely. And making it visual too, right? Because how many times has... 
has a parent get got upset with their kid because their kid has a paper due the next day. And they're like, I told you we had therapy on Thursday. How many times do I have to tell you have therapy on Thursday? But it was never made visual as well. So having that verbal mix with that visual is super helpful. Something we should have probably started the conversation with is executive function skills can be learned. Okay. I don't think most people understand that. They think you're born organized or disorganized and somehow this organization gene is in your DNA, right? So doing this planning on Sunday night, you may not see the immediate payoff in a month or two months, but over time, your student's going to learn how to organize themselves and plan themselves out. And if they can do that before they get to college, I mean, I can't tell you how many kids, college kids we see who don't have that skill yet. So that was part one of the interview. I hope you all enjoyed it, and I hope you are willing and wanting to uh, come back for part two. That will be released on Tuesday at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you found this podcast useful, please subscribe, rate, review, and share with a friend. If you would like to find more information about this podcast or my upcoming presentations, please check out my website, perspectiveforparents.com. Spelled out, that's perspective, the number four, parents.com. Thanks again. Thanks again.